from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 28, Godzilla vs. Destroya. OG fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we will be covering the 1995 film Godzilla vs. Destroya. Yes, the Heisei era comes to an end, my friends. And I would be lying if I said that I wasn't happy about that. <laughs> I know the last few episodes have been a little bit of a challenge for you. This one's an interesting entry. I'm not. We'll see how we how we deal with this. However, the this is very highly rated. Yeah, I think it's the third highest Godzilla film on on that movie database. Yeah, in rating. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what we can do with our uh, our Zeno Kaiju or a uh, Kaiju Morph or whatever we want to <laughs> where we'll call this. <laughs> Our related topic for this episode is the act on National Anthem and Flag. Before we do our usual film description, we will play our first special bonus feature titled Creating Our Film Descriptions, where we explain the process behind our audience-focused approach to Part 1. If you have heard this already, skip to 14 minutes and 37 seconds in this episode. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and we are proud to bring you this bonus behind-the-scenes special feature about how we put together our film descriptions. Yes, we're. this is something that we're really proud of. Actually, it might be the one of the things we're most proud of with our podcast, and it's unique, and it's really cool. Our tagline for our film descriptions is this. It's an analysis tailored to kaiju movies to arm the listener with the facts. At last, a way to compare these movies to each other. We started developing this in 2016, and we finished around uh, mid-2017, about maybe a month or two before we released our first yeah, episode. Yeah, something like that. We originally created it as just for ourselves uh, when we were preparing for each episode of the podcast, so we knew what we needed to talk about with each movie. It's a good idea to bring the audience up to speed and have everybody sort of on the same page, give them the figures that we're working with and the facts that we're working with. Over the process of a year, we worked very hard to create something unique, like a signature way for, for us to talk about these movies, something that is definitely our own way of doing it. Plot summaries can take a long time. Yeah, to, if, to you're, if you're not writing it well, it can just drag along. And trust me, I've listened to a few podcasts where the plot summary just seems to go on forever. And with this, we have lowered it down to five minutes, and it's not just a plot summary. It's much more than just reminding the audience about what happened in the movie. 
And our goal was to describe the film. And this worked over a process of three different stages, at least, of development. The mm-hmm. one where it's our own, and then we try to do an audience-focused version of that. And then the third version was when we finally nailed it down. Yes. But this was a lot of... We had, we had to talk about these movies. We did. A lot. And, and, and we had to talk to them about them in the context of the series as a whole. And yes. just how to fit these movies together. Because they're mm-hmm. so different from each other. And there was... There were a lot of growing pains along the way <laughs> trying to figure out how to do this because no one had really done anything like this before. Just reading a plot summary on its own, like if you go to a wiki, whatever, on the internet, all it is is just, and then this happened, and then this happened, and it doesn't give you the big picture at all, and, and it just is lacking, and it's boring to read, really, too. So we wanted to create something quick, focused, and to the point. It was an effort to get the information at the beginning rather than making our film discussions sound like a big information dump. If you're a regular listener, you've heard plenty of these film descriptions, these part ones before. We have them separated into three main sections. What's going on? What are its elements? And what is it telling us? So with what's going on, we start with talking about Godzilla himself. Godzilla is not the same Godzilla every time. No, as he, we've well documented. Yes, he, he changes. And that's why we want to describe Godzilla. What version of Godzilla do we have in this movie? Is he a force of nature? Is he a character? Like, wh- what is that whole deal? You know, what, what are his characteristics? And we we're able to do that for every movie. And being able to classify what kind of Godzilla we have is important. And it often sets the stage for what kind of Godzilla movie we're getting. Next, we talk about any other kaiju who might be appearing in this film. And we do the same thing as with Godzilla, but generally it's just uh, they don't change radically very much from one to the other. No. It sometimes does. Next, we talk about what's going on with the human characters. And we do the same thing. We describe them instead of telling what they do. We say a little bit about that, but it's more about describing their character, what their motivations are, what their drives are, and the purpose is to avoid summarizing the plot. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you can remember the characters in your mind, that's just as good as remembering what they do because you'll remember that. It'll jog your memory. Mm-hmm. And this was actually one of the sections that needed a lot of ironing out <laughs> over the course of putting this together. Depending on how complex the plot can get. Oh, yeah. Especially when we got to the Heisei films. We then go further and we say, how do these two different plots mix with each other because sometimes they're separate sometimes they crisscross each other at points and sometimes it's just one big story and and there aren't separate things going on the way that kaiju films are organized a lot of the time godzilla is the problem but at times he's also the hero whatever the problem is in the movie it often involves a kaiju and so what we do is we describe the various ways that humans usually, or other kaiju, used to solve the problem at hand that the movie has presented us. It's good to jog your memory and get reminded of exactly all the steps that they go through in order to try to fix it. Which then culminates with the next thing we talk about, which is how the issue is resolved. Usually, that it's what? How they got Godzilla. How they... Or the other kaiju, or mm-hmm. whatever. Yes, and it's to remind how the plot is resolved. People are able to think, oh yeah, that's what happened at the end in that one. Because there are so many of these movies, it's good to get a reminder. Yeah, uh, sometimes they can blend together a little bit. We then move on to story complexity, and we say, how simple or complex is the story? Because there are subplots sometimes, and this is basically like, how much subplot activity is in this movie? Next, we tackle 
what the elements of the movie are. We start with production quality, and we describe the special effects. Are they good? Are they lacking in places? Was there a lot of care put into it? What the budget of the movie was, who was working on the special effects, pertinent information like that. Yeah, so we're able to figure out, was this a high or low production value? How much care and how much money was put into the final product? And as far as the special effects, what, what kind of incredible special effects are we looking at? Are we looking at traditional? Are we looking at CGI, etc.? Then we describe the tone, gravity, and fantasy level of the film. These movies have a wide spectrum of tone. You know, there's, there's serious and cheesy, funny, on purpose funny. And, and Unintentionally we, funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then we describe how serious it is and how much fantasy is, is in this movie. Because a lot of these kaiju movies, I would say, are more fantasy than they are pure traditional sci-fi. Yeah. But at the same time, some of them are more fantastical than others. Yeah. And the others try to be a little bit more grounded despite all the extraordinary things that are going on. Then we describe the experimentation level. Just how experimental this movie did. How far did they go out on a limb with, with trying to create something different? And so, in other words, did they take any risks when they did made Did they this? try new ideas, new concepts? Or was this actually just an exercise in risk management? Which leads us to our most important point in the film description, which is the reinforcement of style versus the expansion of style. This is one of the most unique features of our film description. It took a while for us to put this together because we had to go through each film and decide which one of these movies establish enough new style for the Godzilla series and which ones are more on the side of reinforcing stuff that's already there. And it's different than talking about how experimental something is. This is more an aspect of style and what they're trying to actually do overall with the entire movie. And I remember we had multiple debates about what qualified for which one. We had some disagreement at points. Because sometimes it's both and you have to figure out which one. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult. And given that there are over 30 of these movies, it's, we had to decide each one and we it did actually come up with a list. The movies that we decided established style in the Godzilla series were Godzilla 1954, the original, then Godzilla Raids Again, 1955, Mothra, 1961, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, 1964, Invasion of Astro Monster from 1965, Ebira, Horror of the Deep from 1966, Son of Godzilla from 1967, All Monsters Attack from 1969, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1974, Godzilla vs. Biollante from 1989, and Godzilla vs. Megaguirus 2000. Uh, the rest of them we have listed under the reinforcement of style. They were using things that had already been established in the franchise. Now, oftentimes doing different things with them, but still going along with what had been done before. And some of these, they're reinforcing a combination of multiple films that preceded them sometimes. And it's up to sometimes two, it's sometimes four. Mm -hmm. And those are what we came up with and finally decided. But I guess at some point you have to make a value judgment with some of them. And it's just uh, after a lot of discussion, this is what we decided on. And there are definitely reasons why we chose these. Next, we talk about why the film was made and who it was for. Yeah. And what did the creators mean to do when they made this? What was their view? And was the movie meant to like help the audience cope with something, which obviously the original Godzilla qualifies under that. 
or was it meant to entertain? Which uh, maybe King Kong versus Godzilla yeah. would qualify under that. It was entertaining. Was the movie meant to attract new audiences and to get different new people in the theater to, in order to, what we, how we say, we sort of round out the, the, our pie. You know, mm-hmm. you get every piece of the pie. Broaden in there. the appeal. Yeah. You're able to broaden and expand the appeal of the entire franchise of Godzilla. Which is why we then talk about whether or not they were successful. Yeah. How much money did this movie make? Was it a big hit? Was it a flop? And how the fans overall as a fan base view it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, uh, I always make sure to mention what the movie's budget was. So that way you can compare the numbers to see how successful it was. And this is funny because some of the films that didn't sell very many tickets are, are ones that a lot of people liked too. Mm-hmm. But, and so it's, it's interesting to find out which ones actually had commercial success because it, you, some of these, it makes you scratch your head about why something was good, but yet it, not as many went to see it at the time that it was out. There are a lot of reasons for that. It's a way to gauge rea- uh, reaction to these movies over time. And then if it's applicable, we talk about any differences that there are between the original Japanese version or the dub version, because a lot of people have seen, especially with the, with the older films, have seen different versions of each one. They may be more familiar with one over the other. So we make sure to say, you know, these are what separate uh, the two, because we here at Kaiju Vision Radio focus on the original Japanese versions. Finally, we talk about what is this film telling us? And with that, we describe the forces at play, which it's different than the theme. For instance, in Mothra versus Godzilla, there, there is a struggle between nature versus civilization. Or if we discuss sometimes in these movies about traditional things versus things that are new. Yeah, the the ideas that are in conflict, and uh, oftentimes those are exemplified by different organizations that you might see in these, particularly once you get to the Heisei movies. So you have groups that are at in conflict with each other. Because their goals are at conflict with each other, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we do mention the theme, because that's very important in a lot of these movies. And so what are the lessons that the movie is communicating to us? And to use a bland phrase, what is the moral of the story? Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it, listeners. This is something that we're really proud of. It's something we work hard at every week so that we can make sure we maximize your listening experience with our podcast. So that concludes our bonus behind-the-scenes special feature about how we put together our film descriptions. And with that, now we will proceed with part one, our signature film description for Godzilla vs. Destroya. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a force of nature. His nuclear reactor-like heart is melting down, so his body is glowing red and he's constantly writhing in pain. He roams East Asia in search of Godzilla Jr. Destroya is a merciless and sadistic mutation of Precambrium crustaceans created by the Oxygen Destroyer. He metamorphoses through several forms via accelerated evolution. Godzilla Jr. is Godzilla's gentle and confused offspring who wanders the coastline to return to his birthplace. Dr. Kensaku Ijuin is an optimistic scientist experimenting with microoxygen, a chemical he believes will be beneficial to many fields despite its similarities to the oxygen destroyer. Yukari Yamane, granddaughter of Kyohei Yamane, is a concerned TV reporter covering Dr. Ijuin's research and Destroya's attacks. Her brother, Kenichi Yamane, is a brilliant college student recruited by G-Force in lieu of Godzilla's bizarre condition because of his knowledge of Godzilla's biology. 
Nikki Sagusa is a compassionate G-Force psychic trying to track Godzilla Jr. despite her waning powers. Meiru Ozawa is a young and intelligent psychic providing G-Force with plans for dealing with the kaiju. As with previous Heisei films, the human and kaiju plots are unified. There are a few moments where they diverge, but otherwise the characters' actions revolve around the monsters. Both Godzilla and Destroya are problems in this film. G-Force and the JSDF employ freeze weapons, most notably those equipped on the Super X-3, against Godzilla to cool him down and prevent his catastrophic meltdown. Destroya's many aggregate forms slaughter a special forces team. They then combine into a giant form and decimate JSDF forces. Godzilla Jr. is telepathically redirected to Tokyo as bait and defeats Destroya. Later, Destroya emerges in his perfect form, battling both Godzilla and Jr., killing the younger kaiju. Both problems, ironically, are solved by the humans. G-Force and the JSDF prevent Godzilla's death from destroying Earth with a second bombardment of freezing weapons. A wounded Destroya takes flight only to be shot down by the JSDF. He dissolves into a white mist on ground superheated by Godzilla. The script by Kazuki Omori is a comparatively simple story with many characters, although most of them get plenty to do. This arguably has the clearest and richest themes of all the Godzilla films he's written. Though Omori is aping the Alien franchise, the aping doesn't break the suspension of disbelief as much as the previous movies he's directed. Like the last few Heisei films, this one was given a budget of 1 billion yen, approximately $10 million. For his final film, special effects director Koichi Kawakita did some of his best work of the 1990s. He employed traditional tokusatsu techniques like suitmation and miniatures, complementing them with newer CGI methods as seen in Godzilla's death scene. The Godzilla suit is memorable since it had 200 lights and a steam-emitting mechanism added to create the meltdown effects. While Destroyer's aggregate forms sometimes look wonky, he ranks as one of the Heisei series' best-realized kaiju. This is the darkest and gravest Heisei film since the return of Godzilla. Godzilla's death looms throughout. A demonic dread permeates every scene featuring Destroya. Any humor is mild and fleeting. While drenched in pseudoscience, this is a fantastical film. This isn't an experimental film since Destroya's constant metamorphosing is similar to Hedera from 1971's Godzilla vs. Hedera. This film reinforces the style of Godzilla 54 with its dark tone, complex themes, and the return of Emiko Yamane. It also reinforces the style of Godzilla vs. Biollante, which created the Heisei series' trademarks of continuity, recurring characters, and flashy battles, among other things. Since the two previous films failed to equal the success of Godzilla and Mothra The Battle for Earth and TriStar Pictures was planning its American reboot, Toho decided their next Godzilla film would be the final installment. The story harkens back to the 1954 original so as to appeal to longtime fans. The studio marketed the film from the onset with a spoilerific tagline, Godzilla Dies, to attract attention. It worked. When released in Japan December 9, 1995, it sold 4 million tickets and grossed 2 billion yen, approximately $18 million, making it the second highest grossing film in the Heisei series. The dub version was released stateside by TriStar on home video in 1999. The fanbase ranks it as one of the best in the franchise. The only changes in the dub version are the addition of English text and the removal of the credits, which feature clips from the original film and every Heisei film. This was restored in the 2014 Blu-ray. As usual with the Heisei series, there are multiple forces at play. Yukari tells Dr. Ijuin that scientists are too optimistic and he counters by saying reporters are sentimental and dogmatic. 
Several characters, especially Emiko Yamane, express the fear that micro-oxygen will lead down the same dangerous path as the oxygen destroyer. Mickey is briefly torn about using her powers to redirect the innocent Junior as a decoy for Godzilla and Destroya. G-Force and the Counter-G Bureau continue to use futuristic technology and psychics in their operations. The film's key theme is consequences. While the Oxygen Destroyer killed the first Godzilla, it led to the unforeseen creation of an even worse monster with Destroya. Dr. Ijuin contributes to this by researching micro-oxygen heedless of others' warnings. Yukari says that Tokyo will become a ghost town thanks to the radiation from Godzilla's death as atonement for the misuse of science and nuclear power. Godzilla and Junior are presented as innocent victims of this misuse. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we give our opinion and do some discussion about the film. So, Nate, what did you think of this one? I actually like this one. I would actually rank it as one of the better entries in the Heisei series. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, we'll see how it goes, but I'm really torn about it. There are lots of parts that I, I that I like and I do want to like, but there are other parts that I'm just... Eh. It's kind of like the other movies that we've been doing lately. The last one and the one before that, Mechagodzilla and Space Godzilla. So I'm rather conflicted. And I can understand. <laughs> Let's get to some of the positives, though, because there are... There are some pretty big positives to this movie, and there, there are obviously reasons why this movie is rated highly compared to the other ones on a Godzilla scale. This movie overall is made better than the previous two. Fil- yes. Filmed better and just overall a better overall package than the previous two. Cinematography is definitely a big step up from the previous ones. I think they had to relearn how to create good cinematic moments for the audience. The Heisei period after Return of Godzilla, there are moments where it's almost like they don't even know what to show on the screen at that point. And with this, there aren't as many moments like that. And I wonder if that was in part because the filmmakers saw Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, which came out the same year and only a few months after Space Godzilla. That movie is just many kaiju fans would tell you it's it stands head and shoulders above mo- uh, pretty much everything that Toho was producing for Godzilla at this point. It's a good argument to say that they were upping their game because of that. And we know how much competing studios and their products affect the studio and their products. The nostalgia factor is pretty big with this movie. And I actually like it. They show us the flashbacks and everything. They do a lot of Image, images for us that that, rec- that help us recall the original film, and it's, but it's not obnoxious in, in its nostalgia. It's not constantly doing that, and so it, it feels like its own movie still. Yeah, the it's building off of the original movie while still retaining its own identity. When I say building off of it, it's building off of the story. It's building off of the some themes and ideas from it. And I really enjoyed that they brought back Momoko Kochi as Emiko in this. So it's it's a nice bookend. We have this we have an actual connection to the past this time. I mean there's been recurring characters within the Heisei series itself, but this is the first time we had a character from the older films show up. That's the word I used too was bookend because 
their the original plan at that time was that this would be the last Godzilla film again. Yeah, at least for, for a decade. Yeah, and they intended it to come for the franchise to come over here for a while, and then maybe come back there. And so that that was the original idea. So the the, the structure of the story actually makes sense if you're trying to make a bookend out of it. You're giving some finality and some closure to this so, you, so that you can sort of open a new chapter, so to speak. And that's something that I do really appreciate in this one is the the, the sense of finality in this. I, I'm of the belief that you can, particularly when it comes to franchise storytelling, doing a story that deals with finality offers you an opportunity to do some very rich storytelling. One example that I like to point to is if you see the the film Logan, which is an X-Men movie. It's a movie about the character Wolverine, and it's honestly one of the best superhero movies I think has ever been made, Because in large part because it's dealing with finality. I do agree. Emiko is a great character and actress to bring back to this, and especially as to the story, too, because of the fact that she was in the original film. I also like uh, Miki Sagusa in this. This is the first movie that she's in that I feel like her character is not new. What do you mean by that? I think we've oh, we finally got to know her in the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so now it's like, oh, okay, Mickey's just here now, even though she always has been. But now you actually know what in the world her she's she's doing and, and maybe a little bit more about her character. <laughs> so you, yeah. you have a clear picture finally of what this character is instead of just vague. Yeah. Vaguely. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's another thing. The, her story is coming to an end in this one as well. There's a sense of finality with her, even though we've talked about how she never really lived up to her potential. She was kind of underutilized, but at the same time, she's been one of the constants in the Heisei series and they gave her an ending as well in this. In fact, her last line in the movie is quite fitting. She says, my work with Godzilla is done. Yes, and her powers are fading. And so she's going to, I guess, become a normal <laughs> or whatever. A normal person? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because of the pacing. But this doesn't seem to be as long of a movie because there's an, either enough action in it or just the story is propelling itself forward at a better pace because for how much is going on in it, I don't think it's long. I think it's what helps is that particularly with the, the monster stuff that you see happening at the end, the movie gives the audience a little bit of room to breathe so that they can get the most emotional impact out of what they're seeing. It, 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 they're killing Godzilla. It's a big deal. So they let those scenes have a little room to breathe. I feel like if it had been shortened, it wouldn't have had the intended emotional impact that it was supposed to have. No, it would have seemed shorter or too short, actually. Yeah. You know who else has a great performance in this movie? Kenpachira Satsuma, the, uh, the guy in the Godzilla suit. This was his last movie, and I th think it's probably his best performance as a suit actor. I've even read interviews of him where he said that this was the best performance that he ever gave as Godzilla. And I think that's in large part because he gets to do something different with this. He's playing Godzilla differently. In this one, he's 
he's an ailing Godzilla. He's on the he's dying. He's constantly in pain. He's a little bit less of a monster in this. He's more sympathetic because of what's happening to him. This condition that's been thrown upon him and he's trying to look for his son. So he's he's expressing a bit of concern there as well. I want I almost want to say it's probably one of the more unique presentations of Godzilla in this cuz there's not really any other movie where we spend the whole film watching him die. The story adds a lot of gravity to Godzilla this time around and to the to the character of Godzilla so to speak even though he's not as much of a character in these Heisei movies as as before but he he's more of a character in this in that we are able to attach to more human emotions to him and we're able to feel his pain so to speak yeah it's also the first time in a while that godzilla is treated with awe and grandeur i think probably this is the most uh the most that he's presented that way probably since the return of godzilla that is in large part because of the improved filming techniques that they used in this there is a way to film a kaiju movie that, that you, maybe there's not a manual for how to do every single shot in it, but there there's a certain way that you have to film a kaiju movie to add that gravity and that sense of awe that they that you, you get it across. Because this is, these are kaiju you're talking about. You have to do that. And so you have to film it in a way that gives notice. As a big, big fan of the Alien franchise, I, I got to say that I do like the fact that they're doing something with the franchise and that they're integrating the some of the physical aspects of the Xenomorph itself into a kaiju. So I, I think maybe you don't have to really think too hard about this. Maybe they went and saw one of these movies because this had been, the first three had been out. Yes, because Resurrection was in 97. Yes. So they had all three of those, and obviously we know which one made the biggest impact for the the moviegoers who were into action and, and all that, because we know, because it's just aliens. <laughs> game over, man, game over! And we even have our Colonial Marines. Which yep. That, that actual, it's at 3212, where our special forces get to the industrial park, and then... They become colonial marines. They get all these weapons and then all, all these vehicles and they have the whole procession of the vehicles coming towards it. They, they really film the crap out of that. And then they, uh, they go into this basement area, which mm-hmm. it, it looks like a version of the, like the new Star Trek engineering room. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> they, they got that vibe going on, which uh-huh. it's great to film sci-fi, et cetera, films in, in environments like this. They go in there, and it's actually really well filmed. It, it shows all kinds of different stuff as they're as they're walking around looking for uh, Destroyer, and they don't know what's going to happen. And one of them even has a motion detector, yeah. <laughs> and, which is it was only in there for a tiny little bit. Yeah. You saw it at least, but it, it shows it showed all all that different stuff, and it actually built up some atmosphere. Yes, when they're looking around. And, yes, and they it, made Okawara makes great use of silence 
during that. No music. No you, video game music. No video <clears> game. Violante. Yeah. yeah. No music. Biowars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, he just lets the scene speak for itself. And even the sound effects are kept to a minimum. All you really hear is the, the clatter of the weapons or the footfalls of the, of the soldiers. Yeah, we don't have the motion detector making all the noise and stuff like in Aliens. Yeah. So, but yeah, they they actually have a sense of atmosphere about it, and they actually have a build up to when we see destroy it for the first time. Then, obviously, at thirty seven fifty four, we get that scene where the media is all over the place, and then our version one of Destroya, the smaller version, the aggregate forms is what they're usually called, Uh, right? And and they they come out, and then there's pandemonium, and, and then we we get our scene with the car. But the, the, the but the pandemonium scene with with the media is great. They're like falling off the ladders, and the, it's all just they all go crazy, and they don't know what to do. And they actually have a they actually had a sense of the crowd actually propelling the audience to to be like, oh crap, this is something's going on here. And they actually spend enough time filming all these different takes of all the stuff that's going on during that. And so it's it's like they're building stuff instead of just i don't even know how to describe the way the previous two films were filmed i don't even know how to describe that word but this is better i do know that and the, but anyway our car scene that's just great the, the little of course the little mouth comes yeah out the, the, the we, extra jaw we, we got our yeah we, we we should have like a little label on there that says provided by kazuki omori but, <laughs> but he's yeah. aping this but he is he it's not like the Indiana Jones. No. That, that was more on the painful side. That was this wasn't a little as, more on the nose. This wasn't as bad. I, I think it was the, the car scene. They actually took a long time to film that. I don't know how long it took to actually do all that stuff, but they probably had her in this car doing all this for a while. Oh, I'm sure they that did. scene together. Yeah. But it's a, it's a pretty good scene. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in the movie, and I, I, I have distinct memories of the first time I watched this movie way back when the scene had uh, had an effect on me and that's uh, how it ends when more of the special forces guys come out after they've rescued the reporter and they torch that blast destroyer with the flamethrowers mm-hmm. and you have that really long shot that stays on the of it burning of it burning yeah. and just slowly melting and the head just kind of droops down and it has that it's hard to hear it but there's this really quiet subtle deep sounding music that's playing it's on there. It's very faint. You can catch very it. Very faint. I can yeah. catch it though. I listen to all these with headphones and stuff. Yeah. I've been and able to hear that. That's good. And it creates such it's it's eerie. And it you cre- don't even have to it isn't even all that much. Yeah. But you don't have it doesn't have to be all that much. That's the point. You're trying to get the atmosphere of it across. And then that POV shot yeah, that's cool. That that was a good idea too. And yeah, then it mon- had that music going yeah, during the, that POV shot, like yeah. wandering around trying to look yeah, for her. The monster POV shot. That's that's classic. Yeah, that that's good. And we that was done in uh, at least Alien Three. I don't know if they did POV shots of the aliens in the Aliens movie. I don't think that they did. I don't think they did. I don't think did they, they did in the first movie. I don't think they. did. I don't think they did. They did in three. I know that. Yeah, but yeah. The, this wall was good construction, and this isn't cringeworthy aping. I, I, I was just fine with this. Actually, they integrated it pretty well. Yes, the, yeah, they had their little moment with the mouth coming out at her and all that. But the Alien franchise seems very fitting to the Godzilla franchise, 
they aren't going to lock into place with each other by any means, but they're going to have a common denominator. Yes, I, I would agree with you there. Uh, also, speaking as a fan of the Alien franchise, I wasn't bothered by this at all. Uh, the extra jaw thing, I think it's just kind of become a little bit of a of a trope because I've seen it pop up in some in some other creatures and other things. It's just it's one of those things people like to copy. Wouldn't it have been amazing if they had H.R. Giger design a kaiju? Oh, baby. <laughs> that would have been so cool. Who knows that would have been amazing. Yeah. Godzilla versus uh, an H.R. Giger monster? Oh. Rated R. <laughs> oh, it'd have to be. <laughs> I really like Godzilla Jr. in this as well. I like how they designed him to as they actually uh, did to uh, to some extent in uh, Mechagodzilla 2, he walks a bit m- with a bit more of a dinosaurian stance. He's a very sympathetic character. As soon as he shows up in this movie, he's lost. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on, and the only thing he can think about is, I have to get home. And unlike Minya, he can actually put up a fight. He actually defeats Destroya. And has his own atomic breath. Yes. No more belching bubbles. No more little uh, smoke rings. No smoke rings. <laughs> nope. He can actually breathe fire. And he makes effective use of it. Obviously, he's been learning a lot from Dad. Plus, we get the buildup of the previous two. So we've gotten to see him grow up, which that that's important, too. So we've had that emotional investment that, that the audience has put in if they've seen... Mechagodzilla 2 and Space Godzilla. And they also bookend Junior's story in this by, once again, using him as a lure for the other kaiju, which, again, creates sympathy. It creates a bit of a moral dilemma. And then they have to do it. Yeah. It's, so it's like we're getting pushed into it. Yeah, it's that's what's different about it this time. The other time, it was more exploitative. It's, we're going to bring Godzilla here with the baby so that he's an easier target for Mechagodzilla. In this, it's, we have to get him here so that we can stop both Destroya and Godzilla. So, the cause is nobler, I guess you could say. One thing the movie does well is it conveys the frustration that the military has because they can't attack him. And they're completely helpless on their end, except for Super X3 and all that stuff. But overall, they can't use normal weapons against him, and so they, to a certain extent, they have their hands tied. The guy who plays uh, Commander also is uh, Akira Nakao, and he's been in all of these Heisei movies, I believe. Uh, Most of them, As the general. Uh, But he's, he's good in this, and he he's able to get that frustration across about how the military can't do what they want to be able to do. And instead they have to manage a, an ongoing crisis that has a ticking clock aspect to it. Like a lot of the people who are involved with the franchise at this point, this was Akira Fukabe's last Godzilla film. I really enjoy his score in this one. He, he resurrects a lot of classic pieces of music I, I will confess that the the scene when Godzilla rises out of the ocean to come rescue Junior and they, they play that, that classic theme, it was it was really exciting. The in particular, I love the music that plays for Godzilla's death scene. I've read in several places that Afukabe said that 
that was actually one of the the more difficult pieces of music he's had to compose because it was almost like composing his own funeral music. So I think he he did put a, a lot of work into this. Yeah, maybe he didn't change a lot of stuff around with a lot of the classic themes, but the you can tell this this was his way of saying goodbye to the big guy. It's very appropriate music, and yeah, the the especially the ending and the Godzilla death scene and all that. That's really good. The music really fits. It's it creates a cinematic moment for the audience, for the fans. It accentuates the fact that this is a bookend movie to be able to have our classic themes back. Our last movie that we did with Godzilla versus Space Godzilla, I still like that. But that that music was more appropriate for that movie. But this music is far more appropriate for this. I like the when they brought back the War of the Gargantuas music because it's really memorable. It made me want to watch that. I like how with the crowd scenes in this movie that nobody in the crowds appear to be smiling. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. They, they, they're actually able to help us mood-wise by that. I really like the use of fire imagery throughout the film with Destroya. Uh, we mentioned the one where the where we see the close-up from the uh, with the flamethrowers when it's melting, but there are several points throughout where they use fire as this uh, visual cue for Destroya. In particular when you get to the point where his his final form is revealed for the first time and there's all this fire in front of the camera then it it uh, dissipates and then there's this big dr- uh, this big music cue to announce his arrival in his perfect form. I thought that was really effective. Destroya enjoys coming out of really big explosions when it appears each time it changes form. Uh, at about 10108, we get the intro of our, I guess, medium-sized Destroya, and, and all the exploding stuff is really good. I liked it. Um, at 10607... That was when we get Destroya in the air, and he's blowing up all this stuff. And we some of these shots that we have that we've been complaining about in the Heisei series a lot is the, is the one where the kaiju is behind a cityscape, a real cityscape, and then there's fireworks going off behind it, and, and nothing is working. This actually has a lot of moments where it's better than that, and it, it, it looks better overall too. It's the building collapses in this movie are a lot better. They look more realistic and the battle overall works better. I, I like that. It's set at Haneda airport. That's a nice, the set airport piece. set is great. Yeah. That, that's something a little bit different too. I think other than using it as just a setting for the Kaiju, uh, we've never actually had a Kaiju battle at an airport. We have a really intense climax in this movie, it, viscerally, emotionally, there's a lot of stuff going on. The uh, junior dies, Destroya kills junior. And I thought that was a really effective moment because both Mickey and Godzilla are two through line characters in this era of Godzilla films, both cry at the death. I love the, that wonderful tender moment when Godzilla walks over to Junior and tries to revive him by, you know, he tries to literally breathe life into him. And all he gets is one fleeting moment. And then Junior dies again because it's too late. 
It's harrowing. It is harrowing. I, I will admit it's lessened by the fact that I know how the movie ends. And even the first time I saw this, I knew how the movie was going to end because I had read a plot synopsis of the thing in a book a year before I had actually before I actually saw the movie. But I still like what they were doing with this. It ranks as one of the I think the saddest moments in the in the entire franchise. The part where Destroyer is carrying baby Godzilla. Oh, that's that's tough. It is. He just he looks like such a bully. Well, yeah, and he but Baby Godzilla looks so helpless. That's he the, does. That's I think what is the worst part. And he's so much smaller too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they really paid attention. He's the, the, dwarfed the super big by God, yeah the super big um, destroyer. Yeah, yeah, that, just that beast. That's one of the things that they uh, that they really do with destroy in this they very much communicate that destroy is just an evil being yeah they're trying to do the Ghidorah thing the the sense of lovecraftian dread yeah yeah and i think they and they did that intentionally i think with the design of destroy as well he looks like a demon he looks like the devil another thing i liked about the climax was all of the ice effects like the i'm sure they were using dry ice and then the like Godzilla's face at one point is like in the process of freezing. Just it looks really good. There was a a lot of logistical things with this that reminded me of Godzilla versus Hedera because Destroya morphs back and forth between his two forms like Hedera did. Thinking that except in this case, it's not jumping back and forth between his his final form and his flying form. He tries to revert back to his uh, multiple aggregate forms because he thinks that he can beat Godzilla with numbers and that doesn't work. Yeah. And then he goes back to the final form. Mm. So I I thought that was uh, that was pretty cool. Overall, the battle is maybe less beam centric than a couple of the last movies that we've had. And I think that works in terms of the story because he really starts to do that after he kills Junior. So he just goes into a rage and he just runs right up and gets and destroy his face and just starts ripping into him quite literally. I mean, he's tearing into him. Yeah, there's all the destroy of blood all over the place. I know it, it, it's it, it looks like pea soup, but <laughs> you know, but yeah, he, he just rips into him. And I love this moment at about 84 50 into the film where they have this this really cool zoom in shot of Godzilla unloading his ray on Destroya. It's it's very satisfying. Yeah, I remember that part. Our closing scene and our death scene with Godzilla is probably the biggest emotional part of this movie. One of the best, if not the best moment in the entire Heisei series. It might be, actually. It's so effective it never ceases to amaze me every time i see it the imagery the music the sound effects the slow fade of the sound effects so that there's only music playing when that's all going on with uh as the that's great the freeze rays and everything it's just it's it's beautiful it is absolutely beautiful heck even the cgi that they use in this Right when Godzilla's flesh melts away and it's just a skeleton. That's not the suit anymore. That looks good for when it was made. Yeah. CGI was still having some problems in the 
early 90s. Yeah, but even that, maybe it's just because I'm caught up in the the emotion of the moment. But even that worked for me. And Kawakita got to do his glitter effects one more time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you, this, this is definitely a scene that you want to, you have to get right. Because if, if you don't, if you flub that, then either the audience isn't going to forgive you or they're just going to think you're incompetent. If you can't do a scene like this, you have to make it cinematic. You have to build the moment. You have to invest the feeling into it or else it's not going to work. It was a requirement that this scene be this good. And it's it's especially great to see all of the, the human characters reacting to this as well. Especially Mickey. Mickey, mm-hmm, yeah. But I think the most interesting one is Yukari Yamane, the reporter, because she expresses the classic anti-nuclear sentiment, which we haven't seen a lot of for a while now. But she talks about how the radiation that's coming off of Godzilla, they said it's going to turn Tokyo into a ghost town. And she said it was fitting because everything that had just transpired, not only in this movie, but for all of the previous movies, was because of their misuse of science and nuclear power. Yeah, she gets to say the the thing about why they're being punished and what they're getting payback for here. Yeah, Yeah. and I thought it was very appropriate, again, talking about this being a bookend, that it's the granddaughter of Dr. Yamane Mm -hmm. from the original film who's saying this. And then to cap it all off, we have that amazing final shot. Uh, And there's some buildup to that because they start noticing on the computer that the radiation is dropping. You have this wonderful scene of the revived, fully grown junior silhouetted against some wonderful backlighting with a lot of mist and smoke. There's a lot of silence in there until the camera comes up closer to him and you just hear this faint echoing roar and the movie fades to black. And I think it's it's a wonderful way to end this movie. This is another place where you have to get it right. And I, they obviously had to spend time and think about this and plan it out so that it, it feels complete. And you feel like the, the story is complete. And it, there's it, and the finality, it, you're, you have to be able to express all that. And, and this does that. It, it, the other thing is, is that it doesn't necessarily feel like sequel baiting either. Not necessarily, no. No. I mean, it's set up in such a way that if they wanted to, they could have, but they didn't necessarily have to. There are other movies in the series later than this that that do have sequel baiting more than this. Yeah. This just felt like the appropriate ending. We had had such a dark movie, a lot of death, a lot of destruction, and then we get a little bit of hope at the end. The, the little guy that we had sympathized with the entire time, he's okay in the end. Moving on to our negatives about, about this, the shots with them, with the, with the kaiju flying in, behind the real cities and then the fireworks. Those, so those scenes need to go. Yeah, the, uh, the magic flyover explosions that yes. they don't it do It flies anything. over, therefore things below it blow up. Yeah, yeah I, I don't get that. And the wing problems... The they wing still problems, have the wing problems. Um, the pseudoscience of the Heisei series and, and the, the, how laden with pseudoscience everything is. Uh, what, are, what are some of our other Heisei issues? Too, too many actors. Too yeah, many there's a lot of characters. Bad dialogue. Quite 
cringing b- bad dialogue, especially at, I would say, 1802. That part where they're on the ship and and we got our music going and it's all romantic and everything and all they do is talk about Godzilla constantly. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and the dialogue is like really bad. Just like the previous movies that we've had with bad dialogue. But yeah, that one in particular was rather blah. But th- these are all things that... And, and one of the things I think maybe I have more problems with all the gadgetry than you do, but the gadgetry kind of gets on my nerves. The Super X3 gets on my nerves a little bit. I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I was completely okay with how the Super X3 looks. The, we have two like four minute long scenes, people, that, that where yeah. this thing is taking off. And we sh- we see it from every painful angle. Yeah, yes, we know it's a model, and we might be able to buy it in the toy store. But the second launch sequence was completely unnecessary. You could have done this in one shot, not 15 or whatever it looked like it was. And it's just stuff doesn't translate well in, in that how as far as how it looks and yeah. Yeah. But anyway, the, it, yeah. it also doesn't look at like an easy, very easily maneuverable plane. <laughs> it looks really big, really cumbersome. It does. But anyway, I don't have a draw on this stuff, but and I, I partially laughed with the scene, but I, I just thought it, I think, I think it's more bad than, than just funny bad, but it, it's like, there's a part where destroy is dragging Godzilla down the runway. And there's like a couple planes right in the foreground and they're real planes. They're not the models that we were looking at. And there's actually, it is totally business as usual. And this plane is just like, eh, just going along. And then there's this guy that's in the jet bridge and he's just walking to the yeah. plane. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So the planes just function. So the airport's just functioning normally. <laughs> yeah. Obviously the, they went and filmed those shots just to get some nice shots to rotoscope in there. And the, they didn't stop and think, no one is going to be reacting normally to this. And that's the same thing with the Hong Kong scenes. Cause there, there are some scenes there where Godzilla is in the background and, and there's all this stuff exploding. And then the power's on and everybody's on the street, just walking around. And I'm like, <laughs> um, you're on, you're undermining yourself. It's not working. And, and you need just to stop doing this. But it, it was, it looked great. Otherwise, is the problem. That's what's tragic about it is that the rest of this looked okay. But, but then you see the people and they're like, eh, I think the, what was it on, um, in one of my favorite episodes ever invasion of the Neptune men on mystery science theater <laughs> where, they, where they're this like, is at least the third time. Yeah, I think you've mentioned this episode and in this I've podcast only seen it 50 times. And they're like, meanwhile, on a normal Tokyo shopping day, <laughs> just, that, that's what I was thinking. Like, meanwhile, a, a normal during a normal day at the airport, <laughs> yeah, a guy is on his way to a business trip. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could almost see, See, uh, maybe if somebody in the Showa era decided to do a self-parody where they just they have everyone just acting normal while the kaiju are doing their stuff <laughs> in the background, like nobody cares anymore. Yeah, the way you want to joke is like, oh, monster attacks are so normal at this point, and things are so apocalyptic that that people are just like at the airport and they're like, I just want to get in the plane, just escape the airport before the before we get destroyed by atomic breath. Okay, I just want to get. To where I want to go. Moving on to a little bit different stuff. The story in this is a bit complex. It's not too complex, but we aren't always on a linear plan for what to do to solve the problem. And I understand that. I think that this pro- this is presented as a 
constantly changing and evolving problem that they have to face and they have to react to it as it happens. And we have our wonderful ticking clock for to, to add some drama to it. But overall, it could be a little simpler. They could have made it a little simpler as far as just what weapons to use against what and when and for what reason and then the reasons why the kaiju are doing things that they're doing. This does. I'm not a two-year-old. This doesn't have to be extremely simple by any stretch of the imagination, but you could have maybe ironed it out a little more. But I, I get it, though. They're doing the evolving situation, and they have to react to it in order to have stuff happen. After a while, though, the pseudoscience just... It becomes just all-encompassing as if that's what you're supposed to be concerned about. But I'm not. And so that's the problem. All of the pseudoscience is fun and stuff, maybe to others, but not to me. And it's just, it's adding words. This, the screenplay is a little wordy. And, and they could have knocked it down some in, the, in the, these pseudoscience stuff. And they could have had people act more. Maybe that's the issue. The pseudoscience did eventually get to the point where... It's almost I, like, it, I don't care anymore, just whatever. Yeah, it, it got <laughs> to the point... It's all like you're making it up as you're going along yeah, anyway. Yeah, it, it did eventually kind of get to a little bit of a, a comic book absurdity point. Yeah, I I, I think there, the moment I had written down in my notes where I just said, okay, guys, you, you've just gotten a little bit nuts now is when... They say, oh, uh, Godzilla's going to melt and he's going to explode and it will destroy the entire world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ignite, like, yeah, the, and that was, that goes back to nuclear the, the theories that, that people had about what would happen if a nuclear war occurred. And that was yeah. way before this movie. And, yeah. and, and they, and the whole idea of it, of a nuclear war igniting the atmosphere and then, you know, eventually. Hell. Yeah. Yeah, so and th- that's that's your end point. And so it's like the it's like another like nuclear winter was one. And then this one was just ignite the atmosphere and the atmosphere explodes. Yeah. And but this yeah. At, at that point I was just thinking like so you're telling me that Godzilla is as powerful as what multiple nuclear warheads going off at once? One well, well, would be enough. They say like I all think. the ones in the world going off. Yeah. Some, I, and then they said that he could go through the earth and bore a hole through the earth. Yeah, that was after and, they that's after they kept him from exploding. Then they said, "Oh, but he'll melt through the earth." Yeah. No, I understand that that's that, that's Maybe their they way. just wanted a reason to do these animations for us. Yeah, the PS1 <laughs> graphics that so we, we had could, in there. So we just had that in there. Maybe that's why, but yeah, it's all like, "Oh, the, this could happen." Oh, no, this, and that's fine. But I think have a limit to the number of times you change things around like this through the pro- through the course of only one hour and 43 minutes. <laughs> yeah. The destroyer effects in this are sometimes good and sometimes hit and miss. Yeah, particularly with the aggregate forms. The little crab walkers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Their, their legs look kind of wonky. And they, well, it doesn't look very easy to use something like that. No, as far yeah, and so moving it around is just awkward. It made me miss Kumanga, because the Kumanga effects were incredible. Yeah, and these just aren't on par with that. They look okay, but then there's just the practical aspect of moving them of them moving around when they walk. 
Yeah. And, and then they sort of look like they're being dragged across the floor. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes when they're walking. And- yeah. And then there's there's also the issue in the that shot. It's a miniature shot when the JSDF is firing on the smaller forms and they're they're supposed to be swarming around on the building. And it's right before they all combine and then the larger right. the aggregate form appears. <laughs> The vehicles look okay, but then the, the little destroyers that are crawling around in the building, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of weak. The, yeah. The, there are parts in, during the effects of this, and I, I would say with the previous two films as well, where where, where the, you see the effects, and it's sort of like, uh, uh, and you just get through it. That I that, that Actually, that happened way more with me with the Super X3 than it did with any of the kaiju, though. I guess some have said that that they're upset about the whole Godzilla dies upfront message in the advertising, and then it, it, they don't really follow through because they have a spare. <laughs> and then I I don't have any problem with it actually. That's that, at a certain point I just think that's how that's how anybody advertises movies a lot of the time. You, you have to get the audience to see the movie, and so this is one of those things that's going to almost make them show up, which it did. Yes, yes, it did. I mean, it, it's the second highest grossing movie of this era, so it it worked. <laughs> and I don't have a problem with it either. It's technically not inaccurate, even with Junior at the end. And I'll tell you right now, compared to a lot of other ad campaigns for films, this is minor. <laughs> Let's move on to interesting things now. I think we've done with enough of the dislikes because most people like this movie, and I think overall it's a pretty strong one. Yeah. One thing that I thought was was kind of interesting is I think this is the first Godzilla movie that ever mentions the internet. And it's actually a bit of a plot point because they said that the the college kid sent them his thesis on Godzilla's biology through the internet. And the internet was barely a thing at that point. <laughs> and then we have people who apparently have smartphone technology from a few years in the future because they're watching the news on their phones. Yes, that was pretty cutting edge but i mean it is japan I and mean, it's ugh, if anybody's gonna do it i would expect that and they were pretty far ahead on the internet compared to here as far as just they don't have so much distance to cover and also they can their, their servers don't have as far to travel and so you get these nice low ping numbers but yeah this is interesting about the internet the airport that they show in hong kong at the beginning is not there anymore it was actually closed only three years after this movie was released which was the hong kong kai tak airport and that was the one where you have to make this huge turn very abruptly very sharp in order to curve and be able to land on this runway you had to have special training as a pilot in order to even land here it was uh, quite amazing and like it was one of the places for plane spotters just because the planes have this very slow loud low descent over the city uh, of Kowloon city. And so it was just a, a very iconic airport and it's not there anymore that there's a whole new airport that's uh, West of Hong Kong. But I think it's interesting that they, they were able to have that there. And you get to see a little bit of that in this movie because they show some, yeah, they show jumbo jets landing. Yeah. They actually are showing the real jets um, taking off and landing. And so it's, it's a good, it's a good scene to start off the movie with. Brian, did you notice around the the thirteen twenty eight mark that we have a truck that passes by in a shot and it says the Nakano line? I did. <laughs> I don't think anyone else 
on the internet has brought this up, but when I saw that, my first thought was, is this an homage to Terry Yoshinakano, who did the special That's effects in the I 70s? Thought. Yes, I did find that interesting. It was pretty funny. That, that, that has to be what it is. <laughs> I think I know which nuclear plant this was referring to in real life, and that was the Ikata nuclear plant. And that was, it's the only nuclear plant that's on Shikoku, and it's right by the body of water that Godzilla is in. And so it's, uh, that is the location. All right, Brian. So the the biggest theme in this movie is consequences and dealing with consequences. And the, the most important connection, I think, one of the most important connections, I think, that this film has to the original is the whole thing with the oxygen destroyer, creating Destroya. Here's my question to you. Do you think Destroyer's existence and what happens because of the use of the oxygen destroyer, does it invalidate Dr. Sarazawa's sacrifice from the original movie? I believe so. I think I know what I think I know what you mean, yeah. At least in this timeline, in this universe. Because in the Showa universe, everything was fine. Definitely in this universe. Yeah. Yeah, because we we restarted the we rebooted everything, and so we don't have to say that this changed Sarazawa's sacrifice in the Showa series. No. Right. Because that's a good distinction to have to make. But yeah, in that case, I think it does. It's not something I think a lot of people would notice. Uh, maybe not, but it, it's something it that is I valid though. Yeah, because it is something I was thinking about because Sarazawa allowed himself to die so he could make sure that the oxygen destroyer would never be used again. And while he succeeded in that, the use of the oxygen destroyer created another monster. So it, it's weirdly ironic, but it saddens me a little bit because I, I like thinking of Sarazawa as a hero and what he did was. It was such a big thing when we we talked about this in our episode on the, on that film about how important what he was doing was, and about how complete what he did was, and this takes away from that completeness of his sacrifice. It, it maybe it's not pointed out quite as much, but there there's still a lot of this talk about how Destroya came from the oxygen destroyer, and that not only. The oxygen destroyer revived him, but then it was uh, then he used the micro oxygen to continue his mutation. So it's a combination of factors: the 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 research being continued. So it's a consequence of this new research being continued. But the the original device is still the origin of all of this. And there's there's a lot of talk about how especially from Emiko Yamane about how she says this micro-oxygen is the same thing as the oxygen destroyer. You're going down the same path. And Sarazawa wanted to avoid this. Yeah, and she wakes up in the night at that one point and, and because she's so worried about it. And it's almost yeah. like the bookend took something away from the, from the beginning. I'm still trying. I'm trying to decide if it necessarily takes something away or, or not. Yeah. Or if it's, if it's trying to address the con- – like I said, it's about consequences. And even our good decisions can have unforeseen consequences, maybe even unforeseen bad consequences. So we can be doing the right thing. It might be the right thing at that moment. It might even be end up being the right thing for a very long time. But then somewhere else down the line, something else happens. Not only did something come out that's bad out of the oxygen destroyer being used, something really bad came out of it. <laughs> so that that's a problem. Yeah. 
everybody has a different opinion on this movie. It seems like there's, it's rather diffuse, but at the same time, it's still computes to high rating. And I think that's because of the nostalgia and because of all the feeling that's in this, but moving on from feeling <laughs> six minutes in. Exactly. We have, um, Smirkonish from CNN show up <laughs> on the television to talk about Godzilla. <laughs> and it's hilarious. I didn't know a Smirkonish started his, career at in uh, kaiju movies from the mid 90s <laughs> but that's totally like, a lot of it look he totally looks like him but that was funny just to to watch just because it, it's interesting how a lot of these movies lately they've had an english language something or other at the beginning and this is way towards the beginning of the movie i'm just happy that no, uh, he didn't say godzilla at the beginning <laughs> no there wasn't yeah i was scared of that <laughs> at one point I believe it's the general. He orders an evacuation zone for uh, the area around Tokyo, right? And he said 300 kilometers. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. That's kind of a lot, isn't it? <laughs> well, 300 kilometers is nearly from Tokyo to Sendai. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it, it also includes all of Nagoya. That's how far away <laughs> 300 kilometers is. It's like all of the inner part of the island of Honshu, like all of it. Like there's only only small parts of Honshu are really left after you take a 300 kilometer radius. And I thought, you know, that's probably not going to be very easy to do. 300 kilometers is a really long way. <laughs> Thought, at that point, why don't you? That's the biggest that point, why, evacuation order I've ever heard in a kaiju movie. Ever. At that point, why don't you just evacuate Honshu? I mean, just, just evacuate all of Japan. Just do it like submersion of Japan and then have everybody line up and then they all just leave. Get on the boats, get on the planes, just everybody run. But the thing is, that, that uh, took a really long time. But anyway, it's funny. Like, it, it looked like virtually the whole country like when you look at it on a map it's like almost the whole country <laughs> <laughs> something i find a, a bit hilarious is g-force's most effective weapon is the super x3 they had all this futuristic tech built giant robots built a mecha godzilla yeah, yeah. and the and the, the best mo- thing the they Mogura. ever did yeah and then after all that they're just like yeah, why don't we go back to the Super X line? Let's just get know. a plane and put some really good weapons on it for a change. Yeah. Hey. Screw this futuristic tech. Screw the giant robots. Just eh. forget the diamonds and, and the ray and, and all that stuff. Just just put a big freezing gun on it. <laughs> and there you go. I think it was a uh, Meru mentions that there is now a psychic school in the United States. I assume it's being run by Professor X. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like a kaiju Jedi Academy is in the United <laughs> oh, States. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> because you know we got we have to keep G Force supplied with psychics because apparently in this universe psychics lose their powers at about age twenty five. <laughs> yeah, that's an unforeseen downside, isn't it? Speaking of losing your powers, now this was a product of stuff being changed in the dub, and unfortunately the the Blu Ray subtitles still keep this. The but <laughs> when uh. Meru says that she hopes that someday she'll lose her powers like Mickey so she can get married, have kids, be a normal girl. I wrote down in my notes, Mickey looks like she's thinking, I had that chance last year. I blew it. She did, didn't she? (laughs) Well, then at the end of that scene, she just has this look on her face like, oh. (laughs) We have Mickey in this. She says her signature line, not once, but twice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's like, 
Coachella. And I'm like, oh, great. Can't, I thought can't have it. She had to make up for the one last one because yeah. she didn't mm-hmm. say it in the last one. She had to say it twice. But maybe it was in her contract. <laughs> you must say, Coachella. <laughs> you have to. You know what Mickey also says a lot in this movie? She keeps calling Junior little one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I have to go get the little one. Where is the little one? She's very, very upset throughout a lot of the beginning of the movie trying to find him. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I'm just I'm just sitting here thinking, what happened to that scientist girl that was watching him the entire time two movies ago? It, it, no one cares about her. Suddenly, his new mother is Mickey. <laughs> well, and I thought, well, don't you have a psychic connection to him? Why can't you find him? Oh, well. But then... Waning powers, that's why. Well, yeah, waning powers. <laughs> She's like the Jedi in Revenge of the Sith. They're like just losing their powers just <laughs> inexplicably. <laughs> the Chancellor's not that Sith Lord. He can't be. Yeah. This part in Gigan that, that you were talking about with the blood and everything. Uh, what happens in this one? We have a, we have a full-on inside-mouth attack by Destroya on baby Godzilla and it goes inside of him and everything but if I guess there are two layers of skin so he's okay but uh, wow stabs him in the chest wow oh. that's like th- that dwarfs any of the red tempera paint in Godzilla mm. versus Guy yeah it's painful to watch it's always painful to watch yeah I was like wow th- that's really uh, I don't know I don't know if I want to say graphic or whatever but for the Godzilla series up to now, that's, that's definitely far past the post from what we've seen so far. Yeah, especially since after that, you just see Destroy is just sitting there and it just looks like he's just sucking him dry and he's enjoying it. He's got the yeah. blood in his in his yeah. mouth. He's like, oh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to be and they have to, of course, explain to us what that process is is you know, the, oh oh this life force okay sure hey, he's draining of course, the life you know that him. yeah one of the few actual jokes though in this movie is there's uh, the point when uh, our favorite super x captain who comes back from Bialante in this to uh, to run super x3 they're about ready to take off and he's talking about all the new stuff that they just uh, put onto the super x3 and he comments about seventy six thirty, he says, "There goes our budget for the next year, if there is a next year." I admit, I made uh, it made me chuckle, but that's mostly because I find government spending jokes funny, <laughs> and the notion that they have so much stuff on the Super X that they have no more money left. <laughs> it's a good thing it holds together, at least. Yeah, this is the only one that doesn't get destroyed, and it actually kills off something. Yep, pretty much. I think there's only one moment of real comic relief that I felt in this movie, and that was Koichi Ueda as the aquarium guard. <laughs> He's so good. It's hilarious. And then it's like when they have this in movies plenty and where they have some guy in his house and he discovers something that that he's going to scream. And then they they show the shot of the house and they're like 50 feet away. And then you hear this. Ah! In the, in the distance, and I think that's what they were going for with this, and then and then showing the showing the fish in the aquarium dying, and the expressions on his face, and all this. He really goes all out, and I this movie really doesn't have all that much comedy, comic relief, light sekizawaness. There's there's none of that going on really, and so the the Koichi Ueda moment is accentuated 
be, for the fact that the rest of the movie is pretty much void of comic relief. And so at least we had that. And he can be a very, very good character actor. And I like seeing him come up in these movies every time that he's in them. Uh, hearing you put it that way, I, I think I like that scene more now. It just feels out of place, really, compared to the whole rest of the mood-wise. This concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part three of the podcast, we will be discussing a topic that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time that the film was released. In this case, we're talking about the Act on National Anthem and Flag, which was passed in 1999, but ranks as the most controversial law passed by the Diet in the 1990s. So first we'll give you an overview of the actual act, and then we will go into the flag and then the anthem. This was a law passed August 13, 1999 by the Diet that formally established Kimigayo as Japan's national anthem and the Nishoki, or what's more commonly called the Hinomaru, as Japan's national flag. Kimigayo was the de facto anthem since 1880, and the Hinomaru was the unofficial flag of Japan since 1870. This wasn't the first time that this legislation had been proposed. In 1974, Prime Minister Tanaka Kague proposed similar legislation, but it was opposed by the Japan Teachers Union and was killed. So the event immediately preceding and precipitated this legislation was what? That was the suicide of Ishikawa Toshihiro, the principal of Sira High School in the Hiroshima Prefecture. He killed himself the night before the school's graduation because he couldn't resolve a conflict between the school board and the teachers over the use of the, of the anthem and the flag. The board demanded that both of the symbols be used at every school ceremony while the teachers objected. Toshihiro was trying to gain support from teachers on the issue. And obviously that, you know, that didn't pan out. This, along with the teachers' protest at the school's graduation, prompted Prime Minister Keizo Obuchi and the LDP to write legislation that made the Hinomaru the official Japanese flag and Kimigayo the official national anthem. While it was originally intended to be introduced in 2000, Chief Cabinet Secretary Horomu Nonaka wanted it enacted by November 1999 to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Emperor Akihito. As much as Japanese society, a lot of it is about finding common ground and consensus. This is one of those things in Japan that there isn't going to be consensus over. This is definitely, as you said, the most controversial legislation of the 90s in Japan's history. But also, this was, um, it pulls at so many issues. This is kind of like Godzilla versus King Ghidorah with, with all the politics in that. It, it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it just becomes a sort of an endless loop of an argument and you're never going to really totally get past it with some people. There's a lot more consensus about the flag though, than there is about the anthem because the, the Kimigayo is actually apparently the world's most controversial national anthem, which considering how many countries there are, that is quite a, a feat. But it's obviously because of not only the song's attachment to the emperor, but also the, all of the history that's involved regarding the war mainly. And so the, the flag and the anthem both have that going on. But the Kimigayo is actually more controversial between these two. 
they've been uh, they were unofficially used for over a hundred years by Japan, but both of them date back even farther than that. I mean, the the flag was used as a war banner back in the 15th and 16th century. The uh, Kimigayo was written over a thousand years ago, most likely. And so they have long histories, but because of their attachments to Imperial Japan, they come with a lot of baggage, which I think is what separates this national flag and this national anthem from, say, our national flag and national anthem. They don't carry that sort of baggage, at least in our country. There's not as much of an argument over that specifically, no, because the, the history hasn't been as as the, the same by a long stretch. This controversy has played out mostly in schools, it seems, as, as the, the hot spot for especially the Kimigayo controversy. And as you said, this is between school boards and school administrations, teachers, and on the other side of it, you have parents, politicians, and, and whoever else wants to seem to mess around with this issue. And it's definitely uh, a tough one. Because it's in schools, a lot of this is a fight about the future and how to tell the story of the past. And if you're going, and should you be proud of those things or not? And so it gets into that argument. So it's about what are you going to teach the children and what are you going to try to do? And a lot of this is also, these issues have also spilled into the whole textbooks thing as well, which that's a whole different issue. Uh, it's, it's similar to this, though in the fact that it's you're dealing with the same surrounding environment of history and baggage. This law, it appears that it, the it might even be in violation of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And so it's, it's because it's of the whole compulsory manner of, of this law. And because on, on one side you have that, but then on the other side you have, oh, the, the teachers are government employees, the schools are government agencies, and so the government can make them do this. And the problem is, is when you're being forced to express patriotism, it, does that actually translate into something that makes sense? Is, is that your job to do that or not? Or does it depend on what you feel about it? Because when it's a law and you end up having to, people have protested this, where at like a graduation ceremonies, they, they or the teachers or the students, or both sit down during the national anthem, and that and that causes a, a ruckus, and then the government has to come in and enforce it, and and then that goes into court, right? There's the whole the whole matter of should you be forced to do something along these lines of honoring the flag and the national anthem, or not? And people, a lot of the time, people don't like being forced to do things that they don't want to do. To say enforcing this law has been problematic it would be an understatement. Prime Minister Obuchi and other government officials said that the use of the flag and anthem wouldn't be regulated. But then there was a curriculum guideline issued by the Ministry of Education that decreed, and I quote, on entrance and graduation ceremonies, schools must raise the flag of Japan and instruct students to sing Kimigayo, given the significance of the flag and the song, end quote. And then in 2003, regulations were passed in Tokyo that required school board officials to record the names of teachers who didn't stand during the anthem or sing it 
with punishments that included reprimands and this is this right here sounds like 1984 territory to me re-education courses pay cuts loss of duties and termination all of this was encouraged by Tokyo governor Shintaro Ishihara he was governor of Tokyo for a while the Fukuoka prefecture rated its schools based on how loudly the students sang the anthem and the Tokyo school board has punished Hundreds of people for not complying with the, with the regulations since 04. So is it any surprise then that there's been loads of lawsuits and court cases related to this? Yes. When you start punishing people and, and having sanctions and all this because you're not behaving the right way, then you run into all kinds of uh, legal issues. And Japan, it's it's... It's, it appears to be pretty hard to, to change very much in the court system, but, but in the United States, th- this would probably be a bigger deal because it would probably get pushed up the level, to a, I would say, to at least a federal appeals court, if not the Supreme Court, this kind of law. And I, I doubt this kind of law would even be passed, at least right now. But this just how antithetical are you going to get as far as just like the emphasis the United States places on personal freedom. And so we don't force, at least apparently most places, we aren't forcing children to pledge allegiance every day. And we aren't forcing them to sing the national anthem and all this if they don't want to. And it's just about the issue of consent and about personal, personal freedom and, and how much personal freedom you have when you're a teacher and you're working for the government. So that's the, your employer, you know, who, who gives you the, the go ahead to do what you can, your employer or the constitution. Well, and personal freedom is the, uh, the issue that the people bringing up the lawsuits are citing, uh, specifically article 19 of the Japanese constitution, which guarantees freedom of thought and conscience. And given that we wrote their constitution, uh, I think that's something that we as Americans can understand. The Tokyo District Court did side with the teachers on this, saying that they couldn't be forced to stand or sing, but these have since been appealed or are being overturned by the Tokyo High Court. In 2011, the Japanese Supreme Court agreed with the Tokyo High Court, saying that these regulations didn't violate the Constitution. This law was passed to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the coronation of of Emperor Akihito, And given the Anthem's connections to the Emperor, you would be curious to find out what Akihito thought of this. But he actually declined to comment on the law because the Japanese constitution forbids the Emperor from commenting on political matters. In 2004, he said it was not, quote, desirable, end quote, for a Tokyo Education board member to force teachers and students to honor the flag and Anthem. I think we can pretty well infer from that that he's not a fan of any of this. And it goes back to history because I'm sure the emperor, probably better than anybody else, knows a lot about what happened and the way that society ran under the empire and how the emperor was so revered, was thought of as a god. Hirohito was the first emperor that has been declared not a a god. The actions of his son would be deemed extremely important he probably believes that there is a lot in history that majorly complicates this issue 
generally speaking, the this law has been supported by the politicians in power, but teachers and a lot of citizens have expressed objections over it. In particular, uh, there have been citizenry who feel like they can't have any pride in either the flag or the anthem unless Japan makes an apology of true remorse about their actions in the war, which is really what uh, this whole thing boils down to. It's post-war guilt. Yes, and it's based on what we've talked about in episode three for the first Godzilla film, which is the actions that occurred in World War II pretty much destroyed Japan. It killed so many people, and they all sacrificed themselves for the emperor. And they, some of them, a lot of them, were very angry about how the military especially took their family members and killed them in action that was unjust. And so it goes all the way back to the end of the war and to the beginning of uh, the entire Godzilla story. Internationally, this is, beca- I mean, this isn't called the most controversial national anthem in the world for nothing. The, there are other countries that, when they read about this law, they're a little bit shocked, maybe. Yeah, uh, both China and South Korea saw this, along with a few other issues, some of which we've actually talked about on the podcast, as signs that Japan was leaning more and more to the right. And given that both of uh, both of them had been occupied by Japan during the war, I can see why they wouldn't be happy with this. This is one of the many issues that international resentment between the neighbors gets flared up. Yeah. The older generations in Singapore don't like it, probably because they're old enough to remember (laughs) Imperial Japan. Various massacres, yeah. However, the Philippines is a lot more trusting. Uh, They don't think Japan will revert to militarism and thought that Japan had every right to formally recognize and establish a national anthem and flag for themselves. And part of this goes back to how the national anthem... This national anthem, it was a originally a poem venerating the emperor. Very short, very simple. And and the argument is is that what they, it's been is being pulled and sort of bent to become a national anthem, even though that's not really what it is was intended on in originally. And this is part of the the, the turn to the right that Japan makes. And it is it starts, I would say, it actually probably started about the early 80s. But that's really depending on, on what part of Japan's history you're looking at. But the increase in nationalism, we, we've talked about that. We've talked about the, the more of a turn to the right by Japan. And we're going to be seeing that more in the future. And so it's really not, it's not a stretch to say that Japan makes a turn towards the right at about this time. Uh, it, it, only a few more years is when we'll actually see that more dramatically. I myself, I'm not sure if I have much of an opinion on this other than this as an American. I'm not sure that this kind of a law would necessarily go well here either just because of the compulsory nature and the, and the punishment nature of the law and, and how to just how you would enforce this kind of thing. The ACLU would probably (laughs) object to this. <laughs> they would lightly. lose their minds. Yeah, to put it lightly. But but here it, we we have the luxury of looking at it from a more distant place and it is the issue of history. 
That that's really what it boils down to with this topic. And I don't have any personal stake in Japan's laws one way or the other. I'm just a private citizen in, in, in America, but comparative politics is really interesting. And that's what we're doing right now is we're doing a lot of comparative politics. And there, there are some, there are some ways you could translate this over here, but it, it's very hard. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I have an opinion either way. It's, it is interesting though. And, and it's important that we know why this is so controversial and what has been happening lately regarding this issue. It's, and this is something that during the nineties, uh, this was in 99 and, uh, it is right around the turn of the millennium that we, that we finally see the more rightward turn in Japan's politics is late, very late nineties, 2000, 2001, right around there. And we've talked about this turn to the right in our discussions, but we, it has been, we had, we had so many movies before this that we had to get through before we finally come to our 2001 film, 2000, 2001. The economy grew in 1995, more than the previous three years, actually. In 1995, the GDP growth was 1.94%. This is also the very big year in Japan because there was the very large Kobe earthquake that hit Kobe and Osaka. And so that was a very large event. I remember seeing all the, the security videos of all of the stuff in the office buildings jumping around and flying violently around in these buildings. I remember the day that happened, actually. That was a very big deal. We don't have another movie for a few years, and so the economic growth for 1996 was 2.61%. And for 1997, 1.59%. We're still in our pretty low uh, area numbers, although 2.6 is pretty good. We will have, uh, I think, even more GDP problems in the near future, as the lost decade is definitely not over. Well, I think that's it for part three. We hope that we were able to get you up to date on an issue that occurred uh, during this 90s era that we've been covering. And I think you all noticed that the last year that I did GDP figures for was 1997 and not 1998. Yeah, that's because our next episode is about Godzilla. 1998. Roland Emmerich. And starring Sarah Jessica Parker's husband. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!